Welcome back to the Warts and All podcast. I'm Susie Edge, medical doctor and historian, and I'm just fascinated by how we've treated the human body in life and in death, but let's face it, mostly in death. Episode 5 then, some of you may have noticed there's been a bit of a gap. That's because we decided to take what I was writing for the podcast and turn it into the book about the deaths of all the monarchs. So I'm keeping them in reserve and we're going to look at something else, something just as gory, something just as exciting, but something else. I am going to give a huge shout out to Catherine Laplume. I was so excited yesterday. I set up my Patreon page properly only yesterday and immediately there was Catherine supporting my creative endeavours of podcasting, book writing and blogging. And so thank you so much. It really does mean so much to me. I have been pondering lately on the ideas of trying to sustain this creative life. And well, let's be honest, it isn't easy. So thank you, Catherine. It really does mean the world. And also my daughter's name's Catherine and it's spelt the same way and I really love that too. <laughs> On today's podcast, we're digging up another body. Well, that's what we like to do, isn't it? This time we're going to look at the bizarre story of what happened to Oliver Cromwell's head. This podcast needs to be accompanied by a picture. So if you go to Google and you Google Oliver Cromwell's head images, you will come up with a wonderful drawing of a head on a stick and it really does accompany what we're going to say now really well. So go and check that out first and then you'll know exactly what we're talking about for the next few minutes. Enjoy! Oliver Cromwell may well be remembered as the man who had the king's head chopped off, but this is a bizarre story of what happened to the parliamentarian's own head, a story that spans hundreds of years. Quite strange. On the 30th of January in 1661, three bodies were hanging in chains on the gallows at Tyburn. It was the 12th anniversary of the execution of Charles I. All three had long since been dead and buried. Now, on this chilling winter's day, the corpses had been exhumed, dug up from their resting places, and were hanging on display. The bodies belonged to John Bradshaw, Henry Ireton, and the former Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. These were regicides, killers of the king. Many of the regicides had been caught, put on trial, were hanged, drawn and quartered. They were dragged through the streets and disemboweled while still alive, beheaded and chopped apart. There was a problem with these three particular men, though. They were already dead. It didn't stop Charles I looking for revenge. At sunset, the three bodies were taken down and beheaded in a show of being posthumously executed. Despite Cromwell's body being long dead, it took eight blows of the axe to remove the head, all wrapped in embalming cloths as it was. The men's remains were then discarded, all thrown together into pits. Their heads were put up on pikes 20 feet high above Westminster Hall, significant as the location of the trial of King Charles I. And their heads remained on display for years, looking down on those below as a grim warning to anyone who might want to take issue with the new king, Charles II. On the 5th of February, Samuel Pepys mentioned that he'd seen the heads there. He wrote about them in his diary. I suppose you would do that if you were a diarist, but they were a tourist attraction. Bradshaw's wife had also been exhumed from Westminster Abbey and thrown into the pits with what was left of her husband. They were not the only ones. Other parliamentarians who had had the cheek to be buried at the abbey, which had been built by the kings of old, were dug up and discarded together at St Margaret's at Westminster. 
The heads of the regicides were up there on pikes for some time, through hot summer sun and winter snow, until one day a storm broke the pike on which Cromwell's head had been a rotting ornament. It fell down to the ground below, and supposedly a guard scooped it up and hid it under his coat whilst no one was looking. From there he took it home and hid it up his chimney of all places. In the middle of winter, it's hard to imagine anyone hiding anything up their chimney, at least until the fire was needed. Imagine if he forgot to tell his wife, and there she was, poised with a match, trying to get the fire roaring. No. There were many, many people over the years who would have liked the opportunity to play football with Oliver Cromwell's head. For 300 years, they may have had the chance. Before all this digging up of bodies, Oliver Cromwell had been given the send-off of a king, even though he wasn't one. Cromwell became Lord Protector and ruler of the English Commonwealth, once he had dispatched King Charles I with the Executioner's Acts. When he died in September of 1658, his funeral was, well, fit for a king. It was held at Westminster Abbey, and his body was treated like many of the kings before him. He lay in state at Somerset House, he was embalmed and shrouded, he was sealed inside a lead coffin, and then placed in a wooden coffin. There was a lavish effigy of purple and gold, velvet and ermines, and a funeral carriage was pulled by six feather-plumed horses for the man who wasn't king. Nope, definitely not a kingly send-off. There was an elaborate funeral procession through London, but Cromwell's body, his actual body, had been interred two weeks previously because they couldn't wait, what with the decay and all. We can't say there were king juices seeping out of him, can we? Nope. We must say Lord Protector Juices. Anyway, he was buried, but not for long. It took some time to exhume Cromwell's body. He'd been interred into the wall of the middle aisle of the Henry VII Lady Chapel at Westminster Abbey. It took quite a long time for Sergeant James Norfolk to get the body out. And when he eventually did, well, he was still a couple of days early for the planned posthumous execution. So he took the corpse to the Red Lion Inn at Holborn for an overnight stay. A trip to the boozer wouldn't have been for Cromwell's sake. He was far too puritanical for that. Sergeant Norfolk, though, probably needed a stiff drink after all that body snatching. Norfolk had also removed a copper gilt coffin plate that was sold at auction in 2014, fetching over £24,000. Sometime later, after his exhumation and a stint on a stick above Westminster Hall, the head turned up in the possession of a curiosity collector of French-Swiss background called Claudius Dupuis. He owned a museum in London with many bizarre curiosities. He was known for being a bizarre curiosity himself, and we don't know how he got hold of the head. Next, it came into the possession of a comic actor by the name of Simon Russell. He very much enjoyed passing it round at parties, until the goldsmith James Cox then bought the head. Dupuis claimed that he could have sold it for 60 guineas. James Cox got it from Samuel Russell in a payment of a debt. It was just passed back and forth. Cox then sold it to three brothers who were very excited about it and thought they might make a considerable profit. They were wrong. Nobody was interested. What is mildly interesting is that each of those three brothers soon met with a sudden death. And so was Cromwell's dried, shriveled-up head cursed now? <laughs> Next up came Josiah Henry Wilkinson, who was a surgeon. Well, we all know surgeons can be a bit odd. He put the head, now with dried-up parchment yellow skin and well-preserved beard, on display in all its glory, 
or gory, or both. Not everyone agreed, though, that this was indeed the head of former Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. Thomas Carlyle called it fraudulent moonshine. Scientists Carl Pearson and Geoffrey Morant studied the Wilkinson head and claimed with moral certainty, which is a kind of way of saying maybe, that this was Oliver Cromwell's head. Believe it or not, there were others out there making the same claim. Fraudulent or not, this time the head remained with its owner for longer and was kept by the Wilkinson family. It wasn't until 1960 that the head finally made it into the grave, this time at Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge, where Oliver Cromwell had once been a student. The exact location of the burial is kept a secret, so that nobody can get at it and have their game of football with it. Oliver Cromwell may well be remembered as the man who took the king's head, but this wonderful story of his own wayward noggin has lasted just as long. If we still had Oliver Cromwell's head above ground, there are a few more modern techniques that we could use to try and identify it, with a little bit more than moral certainty, whatever that means. I'm not too sure how helpful radiocarbon dating would be. It would only tell us how old the head was, and we know that this head that was passed about from pillar to post was pretty old. There could be DNA evidence. If DNA could be extracted, it could be compared to known living descendants of Cromwell. That would be helpful. I think my favourite idea would be a reconstruction of the head using the skull. It might be a really good indicator. We have pictures, warts and all, and a death mask to compare it to. For now, though, no one is digging up the head. So someone has a nice secret head burial place at a Cambridge college. Whoever it is in there. Thank you so much for listening to the Warts and All podcast. We will be back very soon with some more gory stories. And I think it's about time we had a closer look at Louis XIV's rear end and talked about his bum abscess operation. <laughs> Let's do it. You can find me on TikTok at Susie Edge. This week we talked about uh, Diane de Poitiers, Princess Charlotte, arsenic poisoning, uh, Prince Arthur's and the Effort Latrine disaster. I think that needs a podcast all on its own. Uh, if you're wanting to find any of the links to the social media sites, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you can do so at my website at suzyedge.com. There are also links to the merch site and also to Patreon, where if you like what I do and you'd like to help sustain these creative endeavours, then you'd make an old girl very happy. This has been the Warts and All podcast, produced, written, everything else done by me, Susie Edge, and the artwork by Catherine Edge. I'll see you soon.